this semester, this spring, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Judges. Now, you might be wondering, why on earth would we do the book of Judges? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But like I said, we like to alternate between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We don't, typically as Christians, we can focus too much on the New Testament without getting the context and the idea of that the Bible really is one story from Genesis to Revelation. We believe that actually Jesus and the story of the gospel doesn't just begin in Matthew, but it begins in Genesis. If you look, read the book of Galatians, you see that Paul actually says that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because the Apostle Paul, who we looked at last semester together in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says the gospel is actually in Genesis. And what we're going to see in our study through Judges is we will see the gospel at work. But we will see it confront the worst of human depravity. We're studying the book of Judges together because in many ways it's a cautionary tale of what happens to us when we refuse to see God as our king. When we go our own way and we, say, we live after our own rules. The book of Judges, I think, is a great study for men because it's probably the closest thing we have to Braveheart in the Bible. It is full of incredible stories. It is bloody. It is gory. Some of you, if you've grown up around church, even if you haven't studied the entire book before, you've heard of people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah, some of these classic stories of the Bible. But the Judges is also filled with stories you've probably never encountered before if you've never studied the entire book. So it's going to be a challenge for us, but it's going to be well worth our effort. I would encourage you each week to look ahead, uh, to, to read ahead. We'll tell you what's coming next. Next week, we're looking at the end, or the, really the beginning, what, what scholars would say either is the end of chapter one or the beginning of chapter two. Next week, we'll be looking at the rest of chapters two. So already, be reading the rest of chapter two this week as we anticipate what, we're, what God's going to do with us. So again, we're glad that you're here. Let me pray. And then we're going to dive in. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the word, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. This morning, we thank you for the new mercies that we have awoken to in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have also given us your word. Your word, the story of the gospel, the good news on every page. And we thank you for the book of Judges. As we read the book of Judges together this morning and over the next several months, would you use it to open our hearts as we confront the reality of human depravity and what happens when we go our own way? Would you open our eyes to our own sin? And in that place, would you not just leave us in a place of exposure, but would you lead us to the cross each and every moment? We pray nothing less than that this morning, that you would lead us to the cross, that as we confront our own idols this morning and how they can ensnare us, would you replace yourself in deep in our hearts, in the places where we uproot idolatry, would you plant yourself deeply that the word would spring forth into new life. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in many ways, I think it's appropriate for us to gather this morning in the sanctuary, not just because our fellowship hall has been flooded and still being fixed, but because this is the place where God's people gather for worship on Sunday mornings. And I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I kind of have an out-of-body experience in my life, not just on Sundays or as a Christian, but every once in a while, I kind of stop what I'm doing and I kind of wonder, why do I do this? Like, what's the point? Particularly of those things that are habitual or those things that have become a rhythm. Habits, I think, can be very good, and especially this time of year, maybe many of you are trying to start new habits. Obviously, the habit or discipline of gathering for worship on a Sunday morning is a very good thing. But have you ever stopped to wonder, why do we do that? Like, why do we come on a Sunday morning and sit in pews just like this in a sanctuary like this and sing songs and work our way through a worship service? Why do we do that? We do that because fundamentally, we are worshipers. That is what God has created us to be. He created us as his creatures to bow down. We've been created to bow down to our creator. And on Sunday mornings, we gather to recognize that he is God, that we are his people. We gather to be reminded once again of what he's done for us, who he is, and that his promises have been fulfilled. We gather to bring all of, of, of what life and our sin and, and everything that kind of just eats at us. We gather on Sunday mornings to bring all of that to bear at the truth that God is with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We gather on Sunday mornings to worship. But Sunday mornings is not the only time that we worship. When we leave a worship service on a Sunday and we go to wherever we're going, we are still a worshiper. If you don't believe me, I want you to consider the church service that occurred yes, or last Sunday afternoon, not yesterday, the day before, around three o'clock. You know the one I'm talking about? I saw some of those worshipers yesterday at the Dallas World Aquarium. They're wearing red 49ers jerseys. They had traveled a long way to come and worship, right? Now for us, we didn't worship a whole lot, (laughs) I think, during that game. But there is a, a thing that exists deep in us that desires to worship things. Not just worship God on a Sunday in a worship service, But because fundamentally we are worshipers, our worship doesn't stop when we leave a sanctuary. It continues. The question is, who or what are you worshiping? You see, we worship all kinds of things. Our worship doesn't stop. It's just constantly distracted and placed on other things. And in many ways, that is not only the story of our introductory text this morning, But it's the story of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the follow-up to the book of Joshua. And you'll see that in your Bibles, that Judges comes right after Joshua. And, And it's the story of how the people of God failed to drive out a competing kingdom 
in a competing culture and allowed that kingdom and culture to seep into their hearts and minds so much so that because just like us they were worshipers too they began to worship the idols of the culture around them and brothers what i want you to begin to wrestle with this morning and in our entire semester together is we are no different we are no different martin luther put it this way he said idolatry does not consist merely in erecting an image and praying to it but it is primarily a matter of the heart now as you hear the word idol this morning and that i've used that word several times you might be especially if you're new with this thinking what in the world is paul talking about an idol like isn't an idol like a carved statue of some kind of like foreign god like a little buddha or something and, and that could be it but notice what martin luther is saying he's saying an idol is not necessarily carving a statue and praying to it but it's really a matter of the heart an idol is not just a, a statue of, of wood or stone an idol really can be anything that you worship in the place of god anything that really beckons after the passions and desires of your heart luther goes on he says it's primarily a matter of the heart which fixes its gaze on other things and seeks help and consolation from creatures saints or devils it neither cares for god nor expects good things from him sufficiently to trust that he wants to help nor does it believe that whatever good it encounters comes from god so our idolatry is not just that we would worship other things that in those moments when we are worshiping something else we are putting it in the place of god and when we do that we are tricking ourselves or rather maybe we are being tricked into thinking that particular thing can do what only god can and we are turning to that thing because we think in this moment god is not who he says he is when we find ourselves broken when we find ourselves vulnerable when we find ourselves confronting sin not only in hearts or in the hearts of people around us it is easy to forget that god is who he says he is and his promises are true and it's in those moments that i think we are most prone to idolatry so as we look at judges chapter 2 this morning those first 5 verses i want you to begin to wrestle with the idolatry in your own heart as i do in my own what are or who are those things that you are looking to that you've put in the place of god that only he can take that place sometimes it could be a sinful thing but most often it's actually a good thing a blessing that we've turned to to be our god when it can never be so this is judges chapter 2 for us again we're starting in judges 2 not because we're skipping chapter 1 we're going to be looking at chapter 1 this today and really you're going to need a bible today cuz what i have printed here is just a small section of what we're really going to look at So you'll need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the nice thing about being in our sanctuary is we have blue pew Bibles all around you. If you don't have one, please grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible at all, 
that's our gift to you. Take it with you. We would love for you to have the word of God. So take it with you. Take it home today. Again, we're in Judges chapter 2. Let me read it for us. And then we'll take just a few minutes to look at this five-verse section, uh, verse by verse. Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I've brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is God's word for us, and it will be our focus this morning. Now again, uh, most Bible scholars view these first five verses of of chapter 2 really with chapter 1. They're the conclusion of really what chapter one is all about. Now, what is chapter one all about? Well, chapter one is really this bridge between the end of the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. And if you read over chapter one, and again, I would challenge you to maybe do that this week, you might get a little bored at times because it's really giving an account of how God's people were moving into the promised land. Now, just some background for you, particularly if the Bible is new for you or you're a little fuzzy on your Old Testament history. But at this point in the story, the story of God's people, they had been promised the land of Canaan. They had been promised this promised land, and God had called them to go into the land and to occupy it. Now, when you hear that, you might think, well, there was, uh, this was just kind of, it was like the Wild West, right? Frontier. But really, this land was already occupied. There were people already living in the land. For them to go and possess the land meant that they had to go to war. And they had to trust that God would go before them to fight their battles, to go before them so that they could actually possess the land that had been promised to them. So at the end of the book of Joshua, they're moving into this. And you see, and if you look at just, if you have a Bible there, you can see this. Um, in my Bible, there's a little title here, as many Bibles sometimes do. That, those titles, by the way, aren't in the original Hebrew. It's just a way of, of the Bible actually trying to give you a sense of what's going on here. Mine says the continuing conquest of Canaan. So it's story after story of just giving an account of how they were supposed to possess the land, to conquer the land. But as chapter 1 continues, beginning in about verse 27... All of a sudden, there becomes a new refrain in chapter 1. And you see it over and over and over again. If you have a Bible, Judges 1, verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. That phrase you begin to see over and over and over again at the end of Judges, chapter 1. They did not drive them out completely. They did not do what God called them to do. And with each instance, you see different reasons for that. Uh, Here, they were strong, and rather than driving them out, what did they do? 
They put them to forced labor. Hey, this seems like a good idea. God called us to drive them out, but it'd be nice to have them around. And, you know, somewhere in their own historical minds, they knew what it was like to be put to forced labor. So let's do it to somebody else, right? Let, let, that would be very helpful. And you see even different reasons throughout the end of Judges 1 of why they did not drive them out completely. So as you work your way all the way to Judges 2, our passage for this morning, that's the context. Israel had been promised a land. God told them to go and conquer the land. He said he would go before them to drive all of the cultures and peoples out of that land so it could be theirs for their own possession. And rather than do that, they allowed the cultures and peoples of the land to stay and to begin to mix in with their own culture and their own people. That's the context for Judges chapter 2 and really the entire book of Judges. So here in Judges 2 verse 1, we're told that an angel comes to the people, an angel of the Lord. And this is what the angel said in verse 1. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. So the angel is calling out God's people for the very reason that I just told you about. What's, what's the context of this passage? They have not done what God had called them to do. They had not trusted God in his promise. They had not driven out the people and cultures of the land. And not only that, notice the word that the angel uses. It's the word covenant. So the first thing that I want you to think about this morning, I want you to know that we have made a covenant with competing kingdoms. The people of God not only allowed other kingdoms to stay among them, but they made a covenant with those kingdoms when they failed to keep their covenant with God. We make a covenant too with competing kingdoms. Now what's a covenant? A covenant's a promise, it's a vow. You could say that the Bible is really a story of a covenant. Another way to think about that is a story of marriage. Not necessarily between a husband and wife, but between God and his people. Those of you who are married this morning, you all have made a covenant before. The covenant of marriage. You have made a vow, a promise unto death. In the Bible, that is the exact same thing as a covenant. It's a promise unto death. God made a covenant. Notice what the angel says, verse 1. I will never break my covenant with you. That is God's promise to us. I'll never make, break my covenant. I am, think about it this way, God is the perfect husband. The husband that you and I could never be. He fills his marriage vows, his covenant vows perfectly to us. He is faithful even when we are faithless. He loves us even when we fail to love him. He will never break our covenant, his covenant with us. But then notice what it says, verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. God promised his people, I will never break my covenant with you. And in response, this is your vow, that you would be faithful to me. And part of your faithfulness to me is that you would break down the altars of false gods in your midst. You would tear them down. That you would recognize that you have entered into a culture 
where they are worshiping something other than me. And so as you take possession of the land, as you move in, break down their altars, tear down false worship. But that's not what God's people did. Rather than tearing down the altars around them, they begin to bow down at those altars too. So here's what you and I have to wrestle with. Many, many years later, how different are we? As we here, 21st century Dallas, Texas, what are the altars that our culture has erected in our city? And have you worked actively to tear down those altars in your own heart? Are just like the people of Israel. If you are honest this morning, do you spend time at that, those altars? If we're not careful, we can spend hours upon hours and days at the altars of the false gods of this world, never realizing that what we are doing is worshiping. We are worshiping idols and the altars of our city and God says I made a covenant with you I've been faithful to you have you been faithful to him we have made covenants with competing kingdoms and these kingdoms are all around us and for many of us I think as our culture continues to progress these kingdoms are not just these other kings but I think today in our present secular age, this last kingdom, and it's nothing new that we've now given ourselves to, is not just the kingdoms of our culture around us, but it's us. We want the benefits of the kingdom of God without seeing him as king. Because we want to be king. And this is why we've named our study. Oh, look, look at that. It's not there. The big reveal. Well, it's on your page. That's why it's called kingless. Because just like God's people, we have become kingless. There's a, a, another refrain that happens in the book of Judges. And it fi you find it at the end. The, one of the very la the last verse of the book of Judges. And I want you, if you, again, you have a Bible, to go to the very end of the book of Judges. And I'll go there with you. Judges 21, verse 25. This is the last verse, the conclusion. And it's really the theme verse of our study in the book of Judges together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes eyes has anything changed there's two ways that you could read this verse one is to see a king as a political king and that's true in the book of judges they had no political king but I think there's something deeper going on here not only did the people of Israel not have a political king during this time they did not see God as their king and you and I as we live in a city with I, altars all around us worshiping false gods we have failed to see God as our king too and when we do that 
we do what seems right in our own eyes. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, the second and final thing that I want you to know, I want you to know that our idols will become a snare to us. Our idols will become a snare. Go back to Judges 2. Now, what you might not realize is that Judges 2 is actually in the form of a lawsuit. And you can actually see the structure of the lawsuit and how the angel is actually bringing an accusation and then a verdict. We just read the accusation. Here's what you've done. God commanded you to tear down the altars and the culture around you. And rather than do that, you have actually bowed down at those altars. That's the accusation. It's an indictment. And now here's the verdict in the sentence. Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. A snare is a trap. And that's exactly what the idols of our world are to us. They're a trap. They are a snare. They lure us. They are like sirens that call after our hearts. And pretty soon after we go after those sirens, they, are like a, a, they lure us. And then just like any good trap, they ensnare us. They captivate us. They enslave us. And God promises the people of Israel that not only will he not drive out the idols around them, but he will give, he will give them over to their idols. Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, where he says that claiming to, the, to be wise, we became fools. And that God actually gave us up to our own sinful passions. It's one of the greatest acts of judgment that God could enact on us. That he would let us have what we want. Because what we want will destroy us. He says your idols will become a snare to you. And then I, notice, I want you to notice how the people respond. Verse 4. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They wept. What I want you to wrestle with as we conclude and go to your tables is why did they weep? Why do you think they wept? Did they weep because they were caught? Did they weep because they felt shame? Do they weep because of the sentence for fear of what's going to happen to them now that these idols are going to ensnare them? No, I think they wept because deep down, deep down, they had realized what they had done. It wasn't just sin. It wasn't just immorality. And those things are heinous. But it was a particular kind of sin that strikes at the heart. They had committed adultery. They'd committed adultery. You see, because God had made a covenant with them that he would be faithful to them and he called them to be faithful back. And rather than be faithful, they'd become faithless. And in worshiping false gods and giving themselves over to false altars, they had committed adultery against God, their king. And so they're weeping. They're weeping tears of genuine repentance. 
Why do I think that? Look at verse 5. And they called the name of the place Bochum, which, by the way, means weeping. They named the place where they were confronted with God's angel, weeping, to mark this moment in their history where they were confronted with their own sin. <laughs> they named it weeping. And then notice what they did. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. In this moment, they turned from their idols and they turned back to God. Each and every Sunday morning, we as God's people turn from our idols and we turn back to God. But what I want you to begin to put into practice is to make that not just a Sunday morning thing. It's a daily practice of turning from the altars of our culture, tearing them down, uprooting the idols of our hearts and planting Jesus in its place. You see, because there's a promise that Jesus gives us in the Bible where one day there will be no more weeping. We weep over lots of things. We weep over brokenness. We weep because of the pain that we see in the world. We weep because of sometimes the hard reality that we live in. When is the last time that you also wept over your sin? In the book of Revelation, John tells us that when Jesus comes back, to retake the throne, to come as a conquering hero, to establish his kingdom once and for all, John tells us that he will come like a bridegroom and that we as his people will be like a bride. It's a promise that one day we will be the bride that God has always called us to be. And on that day, Revelation 21, John says that there will be no more weeping. No more weeping. Not just no more weeping over the brokenness of our world, but we will no longer weep tears of repentance because we won't need to repent of sin any longer. And so, brothers, as we give ourselves to this book together, it will be a challenge because while they sacrificed the Lord at the end of this episode in verse 5, <laughs> we are about to read a repetitive cycle of them constantly giving themselves over to the idols of their world. And we will see over and over and again just how destructive we can be to ourselves when our idols become a snare to us. But we will also see is that there is grace and there is redemption as the one true king calls us back to himself. And so my challenge to you in this study together is to see yourself in the people of Israel, to relate to them, to see that even though we are cultures away from them and centuries apart, we fundamentally are no different. But just like the people of Israel, we have a God who is faithful who will never, even when we break our covenant with him, he has not broken his covenant with us, but he has fulfilled it by sending his son, the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who loved you so much and kept his vows to you to the point of death, even death on a cross.
Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. We're so glad that you're with us in this semester together. If you have any questions about finding a table this morning, if you don't have one, come see me or Elaine. We'll make sure that you have one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Judges, the challenge that it is. We thank you for the lessons of history, that we would see biblical history as our own, and that as we look at this, we would see that this really is, in many ways, a warning to us of what happens when we don't realize just how entrenched we are in the false gods and cultures and idols that surround us. And so we do pray this morning that by your grace, you would help us tear the altars down, the altars of our city and our culture around us, and that we would bow down at your feet each and every day. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, would enable us to do that hard heart work and that you would even begin to do that in some small way with this Bible study. We know that it takes not only reading your word, but then actually discussing it, being honest with it ourselves, with you through your word, but also with one another. So I pray for each and every group this morning, that in the few minutes they have together, that you would help them to not only reconnect, but to pick up where they left off last time and to really point one another to Jesus. And I ask this in your strong, holy, and majestic name. 